Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to create more happiness in your daily life. This week we'll talk about why and how to say you're sorry, and we'll talk to Hollywood legend Sherry Lansing. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me is my own Hollywood legend, my sister, Elizabeth Kraft. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And, Gretch, today I'm joining you uh, from a very mediocre landline on the Disney lot. Our internet is not working, so forgive me if I don't sound (laughs) so great today. Well, it's kind of comforting to know that even Disney has their internet go down, because I feel like that happens to me constantly. That's true. Well, and speaking of Disney and Hollywood, Elizabeth, your podcast, Happier in Hollywood, is going to launch very soon. May 18th is the premiere. Yes, Sarah and I are so excited about it. We've been working on it. We have our logo, which is makes it feel very real. <laughs> so uh, we can't wait for everyone to listen. Oh, that's so exciting. And it feels auspicious because your birthday is the next day. So it's kind of like a nice birthday present to yourself to have that going. Yes, it is. I love, I love that. And you had a big milestone. I had a big milestone, too, because I got the first pass pages of The Four Tendencies the other day. Ooh, so what does that mean? Now you go through and, and like, copy edit? It's, like, done? Or what does that mean? Well, first pass pages is really a big morale booster for a writer because that's when it actually looks like a book. It looks like somebody Mm. took your book and Xeroxed it. So it's formatted and all the interior design elements are there. And it still needs to be—you still are correcting it and you still can make additions and fix things. But it really looks like a book for the first time. And so it feels like now it's inevitably going to be published, which is really exciting. I just, mm-hmm. for a long time, it just felt like the four tendencies was in my head. But now I realize it's actually going to hit the shelves. Right. And can we pre order it? Yes, there is a pre order oh. link. So I will put that in the show notes. And it is a huge help if you do pre order, if you're inclined to buy the book. So, yes, Elizabeth, thank you for reminding people that you can pre order. <laughs> And Elizabeth, in episode 111, we talked about beware of storing stuff. And we heard from so many people about their own experiences with storage. Yes, it really touched a nerve. Uh, One listener, Allie, she called this reckless accumulation, (laughs) which I love that phrase, and wrote that when her family was clearing out their home of 30 years to sell it, it took six people 40 weekends think about that, equal to about 500 man hours to clear out 10 rooms of a house. She said they produced 10 to 12 bags of garbage every weekend, in addition to having filled two 40-yard dumpsters to the brim. She said a local charity they've called upon has completely filled its truck at least five times with their donations, and they're almost finished, but not quite. So that's (laughs) crazy. Yes, a good inspiration. And also, you and I, by sisterly coincidence, were both reading the same book where uh, storage came up. We were both reading Hourglass, Time, Memory, Marriage by Danny Shapiro. Yes, and she uh, was my first writing teacher ever. I took her class at Columbia, a fiction writing class, and it totally changed my life. Because obviously I became a writer, so I read everything she writes. Um, And this is actually, I think, my favorite book she's written. It's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And there was this passage that we thought I would read about storage. 
Yeah, and if you're interested, this book, Hourglass, it's a it's a beautiful reflection on, as the subtitle says, time, memory, marriage. It's really her reflections on being married, what it means to be married to the same person for a long time. And uh, it's very, very thought-provoking, very beautifully written. And as you said, you and I both picked it up independently to read it. Um, it's it's great. It just it was published pretty recently. And this is what she says about uh, storage. After our house cleaning, we still had a few rooms that remained untouched. We kept waiting for a rainy weekend to tackle the basement, which, M would argue, ought to be the next on our list. But I found it overwhelming. The basement requires a dumpster or at the very least a pickup truck to haul stuff away. It was easy to part with the contents of closets and drawers, the old sweaters, jeans, dresses, boots, the gold satin dress by the Italian designer worn to a friend's black tie wedding. They now have twins in first grade. The scrape to ship pans, broken thermometers, stained dish towels. But to get rid of my mother's sister's china, for instance, is to cut loose the hopeful young woman who chose the pattern decorated with cheerful bursts of gold and silver confetti. To tape up that box and cart it off to goodwill kills her all over again. Or perhaps this is sentimental and foolish. She's dead, dead, dead. Rainy weekends come and go. The basement remains an obstacle course of boxes. I can't part with the framed diplomas of my parents and their siblings. They were the first generation in my family to go to college. How does that get tossed in a dumpster? My uncle's pipe, my aunt's 40-year-old golf clubs, ceramic figurines from my grandmother's apartment and her assisted living facility mingle as if at a family reunion with Jacob's discarded booster seats and board games. I am an only child. I have inherited it all. Oh, it's such a beautiful evocation of that decision fatigue and that the way that possessions are combined with memories and the things that belong to the people who are important to us feel like they have this kind of, I don't know, power. this power. Yes. So that's beautiful. And I will put a link to information about the book in the show notes. This is happiercast.com slash 114. Uh, so if you want to look at the book yourself, uh, that'll be in the show notes. So Elizabeth, this week our Try This at Home tip is to say you're sorry, to actually say the words. It's been in the news lately about apologizing, and it's something that comes up a lot in life. Yeah, and we have talked on the show about over-apologizing, like apologizing too often or, or when it's not really required. But it's also the case that often one does need to apologize, and the key is to apologize in a way that the person actually feels like you're sorry and you mean it. Yes. And there's some really interesting books written about apology because, as you say, it's trickier than it might seem. One is a book that I've been meaning to read that I have not yet read, which is called On Apology by Aaron Lazar. But then Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages that we talked about in special episode 80, did a whole book with Jennifer Thomas called The Five Languages of Apology, where just like with the five love love languages, he identifies five love languages. Here he identifies the different kinds of apology in a way that's very helpful. Yeah. So there's expressing regret. That's I am sorry. There's accepting responsibility. I was wrong. There's making restitution, which is what can I do to make it right? And then there's genuinely repenting. I'll try not to do that again. And finally, requesting forgiveness, which is, will you please forgive me? 
Yeah. And what Chapman points out that I think is really interesting, that is, if a person is listening for a certain kind of message in an apology, like they want you to say, what can I do to make it right? Or they want you to accept responsibility and they don't hear it. Even if you're saying other words of apology, they're not going to feel satisfied because they're going to feel like, I haven't heard from you what I need to hear for me to make it right between us. And I think that's really helpful because this is a lot of different ideas around the idea of apology. It's more complex than it seems when you're just thinking about the words, I'm sorry. Yeah, and it's one of these things I think we can all agree that the um, line sometimes people use, which is, if I offended you, I'm sorry. (laughs) Never has it. I mean, Nobody ever accepts that as an apology. I mean, it's it's almost worse than nothing because it's just, yes. it's so condescending. It's so provisional. It's so like putting it on you. Well, if you're such a delicate, wilting flower that you're offended, well, I have, I guess I'm sorry for that. Well, and then there's also kind of the related, no offense, but, which is kind of the right. trying to get a preemptive exoneration for something that they know is going to make you mad. It's like, that, yeah. no, that's not going to make me feel better. You can't, you don't get away with that. That's funny. You know, and it can be hard to apologize because I think it, if you feel ashamed, or this is what I can say about myself, if I really feel ashamed about my behavior, yeah. the more ashamed I am, the harder it is yes. to apologize because it's like I have to admit I did something wrong or I've been acting badly and it's like reliving it and reminding the person of it, even if it was just five minutes earlier and you just want to pretend it never happened and go on. Yes. But you really do need to apologize usually. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm a blamer. Like I always want to say Mm. that something is somebody else's fault and I'm very defensive where I never want to admit that I was wrong. And so I really make a big effort to say the words, you were right. And I was wrong because I feel like it's such a relief to me when other people say that. And I feel like it is a discipline to really say to yourself, I screwed up and I need to admit. But it's hard. It's very, very hard to say those words and to admit it to yourself. It is. Um, Now, I know when someone apologizes to me, like, say, Adam, for instance, no matter how mad I might be at him, if he apologizes, yep. my anger goes away like instantly. Yeah. It just dissolves. So, I mean, the apology is a very powerful tool. Yeah, because it does, it, it creates that relief. And I've seen that like with my daughter, Eleanor, especially. I mean, she really doesn't like it if someone speaks to her in a curt way or um, speaks in a mean way or cuts her off or anything like that. And I always have this urge to kind of minimize, like, well, what was that? Or I didn't mean it or, you know, but it's better to say, like, I've learned with her if I say I spoke to you in a curt way and I, and that made you feel bad and I'm sorry. I should have spoken with more consideration. Like you say, then she feels fine and can move on. But she can be <laughs> she can be a little she can stay annoyed for a long time if she feels like, uh, you know, I spoke to her curtly. Well, I am going to pay more attention when I do have to apologize, which is, you know, fairly often um, about these five different things, because it is entirely possible that I'm not addressing whatever it is that needs to be addressed. You know, the sort of what can I do to make it right? And will you forgive me in that? So I I think I'm going to spend a little more time thinking about my apologies. But it's funny. I mean, speaking of happier in Hollywood, I would imagine that Hollywood is a place where people are not very good at. My impression is it's a very blamey, uh, accusatory place where people don't take responsibilities or they shift the blame rather than saying it was their fault. 
yes, I would say <laughs> often, oftentimes that is the case. I don't think there's, yeah, apologies aren't big here. But then I think if someone does, it has even more power, you know? Someone's like, I'm sorry I gave you that note and sent you in the wrong direction. You're like, wow, you yeah. know, <laughs> they admitted that, you know, oh my gosh. But yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of blame, blaming in Hollywood. For instance, one time I was in the writer's room and somebody shut me down in a really rude way and later came to our office and um, he apologized, but he said, he said, I'm, I'm sorry about earlier. And he goes, but you shouldn't have been talking. And it was, I was like, well, wait, that doesn't sound like an apology. <laughs> it sounds like an accusation. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, I should have been talking and you were completely in the wrong. <laughs> but it was just funny. No, I mean, so, sometimes apology, like if you apologize the wrong way, it can definitely be worse than nothing. Because like saying, I'm sorry, but it was your fault. That is yeah. just throwing gasoline on the fire. I was once in an office and two of my coworkers were Jewish and Yom Kippur is a very important Jewish holiday and that is the Day of Atonement. So that's a day where you atone for the wrongs that you've done in, over the past year. And so m one of my coworkers went to my other coworker and said like, oh, it's Yom Kippur. So I just want to say that if I've offended you in any way over the past year, I'm sorry. Well, this guy was actually like a super difficult, annoying person, and he had done many things right. that he could have apologized for. And my coworker said to him, I'm sorry, no, I'm not going to just give you a blanket off the hook. If there's something you're sorry for, you should apologize for that. But I'm not just going to give you a pass. And I thought that was great because, again, it's like an apology is meaningless if you're like, oh, if I've ever done anything that rubbed you the wrong way, I'm sorry. Or if I've ever done anything to hurt you, I'm sorry. Right. It's not acknowledging that the a specific action you yes. did was wrong. It's just saying, oh, well, whatever I did. That's <laughs> just not satisfying. Yeah. Well, it turns out on this question of apology, there is a website called Sorry Watch, and their mission is analyzing apologies in the news, media, history, and literature. We mm. condemn the bad and exalt the good. So it turns out people are very interested in what is a good apology and what is a bad apology. Yeah, I think we have all heard a lot of bad apologies on the news. <laughs> well, let us know if you do try this at home and how saying I'm sorry works for you. Let us know on Twitter, Facebook, email us at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, you can go to the show notes for this episode. This is HappierCast.com slash 114 for anything related to this episode. Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Because everyone's different, Noom adjusts to your lifestyle. They teach you the psychology behind the decisions you make and then help you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyze your diet and recommending healthy recipes. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so you have all the support you need to empower your change. Gretch, you know, I love Noom. I love all the tools it has, especially the step tracker and the weight tracker. I rely on those every day. Yep, you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash happier. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash happier. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happier to start your trial today.
Okay, Gretch, it is time for a happiness hack. And um, talking about avoiding having to store too much, uh, we got a good hack from Maria. Yes, Maria writes, recently you discussed reading a book set at your travel destination to boost and prolong the excitement around traveling. I have a somewhat similar hack, though related to cooking. My husband and I travel a lot, and we love buying something from each destination that would remind us of the places we have visited. However, it's often impractical to buy large items, and small souvenirs pile up easily and can become sources of stress rather than joy. Yes, as we were just discussing. Instead, one type of purchase that is small, easy to transport, and brings us a lot of joy is buying spices from each destination. We both love cooking, and we both love being reminded of the places we have visited each time we use the spices at home. We would sometimes spend a whole dinner reminiscing about a past trip while eating a meal with a spice we bought there. Since spices last a long time, the joy and memories from each trip can thus be prolonged by months and even years. That's a great idea, especially for people who like to cook, unlike you and me. I think it's great because there's something about smells and tastes that really trigger. Those are Proustian memories. They really trigger very uh, vivid memories. And also it would require you while you're traveling, like, what is the essential spice that is really going to sum up Italy for me or sum up India, you know? And it would take you into the grocery store, which is a, something a lot of people really enjoy when they're traveling is to go to a grocery store. So it could be fun to buy the spice and choose the spice. And then, as she says, when you're cooking with the spice, it brings it all back. Yeah, that's fun. This reminds me, too, because I get a lot of emails from people asking me, what is the name of the website that recommends the books based on travel, like the fiction and also nonfiction and guides and everything related, related to places, related to geography? If you are looking for that reference, it's called Longitude Books, and it recommends books that are related to a place. And a lot of people find that that is a good way to boost the fun and excitement of traveling. So two hacks, Longitude Books and Cook with a Spice Related to the Place You Traveled. Thank you, Maria. Now it's time for a happiness interview, and we are thrilled today to interview Sherry Lansing. Sherry Lansing is a Hollywood legend. At age 35, she became the first woman to be the head of a major studio when she became president of 20th Century Fox in 1980. Later, she was CEO of Paramount Pictures. She spent 25 years in major entertainment industry roles. Her roster includes iconic movies like Forrest Gump, Fatal Attraction, Braveheart, Titanic, Saving Private Ryan, and Indecent Proposal, and the list goes on and on. Then at age 60, she decided to reinvent herself and have an entirely different, extraordinary career in philanthropy, in science, and public education. A biography of her was just published, Leading Lady, Sherry Lansing and the Making of a Hollywood Groundbreaker, written by journalist Stephen Galloway. And we'll put a link to that book, of course, in the show notes. Gretchen, for me, this is just beyond exciting. Sherry Lansing is, I mean... So big, I can't even um, I, I can't even express what she means out here, especially, of course, to women in the business. So I'm so excited we get to talk to her. Joining us by phone from the West Coast, here she is, Sherry. It's so great to be talking to you today. It's great to be here. I'm a huge fan of of the show, so I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. Well, the first question that's kind of a meta question is, what is it like to read a biography of yourself and to work with a biographer who's researching your life? What was that experience like? Well, it's kind of torturous, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, I, I think I agreed to do it in a moment of weakness, and I spent probably the last three years with lots of anxiety about it. You know, I didn't have any control of it, and I didn't have any approval rights, but I do respect Stephen Galloway enormously, so I kind of took a leap of faith. And I spent a lot of time being interviewed by him, and every time it was over with, I spent a couple of hours of anxiety worrying about it. <laughs> um, so I have to say, when I first read it at Christmas this year, I still had that anxiety, but by the second time, I felt comfortable with it, and I went, okay, I can support this, but I have no way of judging it. I mean, I don't know how to judge a book about myself, so I'm still very nervous about it, and I hope it'll be well-received. Well, it's a great book, and you've had such an interesting life. Do you feel like going through all these memories and reading all these things that friends and colleagues said about you framed your life in a way that you kind of saw it differently than you had when you were just living it? Well, some of it was very painful to reread. Mm. Um, you know, remembering, you know, my, my, in particular, my mother's death and my father's death and going through all of that was very, very painful. And remembering the extraordinary insecurities I had, you know, when I was, you know, trying to be a young actress and trying to break into the film business. But some of it was also very healing. You know, when you kind of remember the path and where it led you to, some of it's very healing. And in fact, my relationship with my mother, even though she's been deceased for a long time, I learned things about her that I didn't know before. And that was actually quite healing. Mm. What surprised me, though, was when I was reading the book was how difficult it was to get every movie made. So <laughs> I think what happens, you know, to someone like myself, because I tend to deny a lot and I tend to always think that the glass is half full, not half empty, was I didn't remember all of these battles for every movie and I didn't remember all of these fights. And when I read it, I went, oh, my God, you know, this was like so difficult. But I didn't remember it that way. I just kind of remembered all the pleasant stuff. Well, one of the things that's amazing is you were the first female head of a studio. But I was struck by the fact that when you became the first female head of a studio, you were only 35 years old. And you mentioned feelings of insecurity and self-doubt. How did you how did you manage that? How did you keep going? One of the ways to deal with the insecurity and self-doubt, among many ways, is just to do the job. Mm. Um, so I kind of ignored mm -hmm. all the conversation that was going on around me mm. and all the pressure that that was being put on me and I just put my head down and I just did the job and I overworked mm. and I overprepared and it was my life do you know um so I didn't pay attention to the outside world and I just concentrated on my work and I find that a very good way to deal with with things that are frightening to you or that are challenging to you is just to concentrate on something outside of yourself. In this case, it was my work. And then usually the anxiety goes away. Mm, that's great advice. And uh, along the same line, you're known for always keeping a calm head when many in Hollywood are you know, screamers <laughs> and, go, and having, going crazy. You are the calm one. Do you think there are habits you had or a certain mindset that allowed you to be that even keel? Well, I think that's kind of who I am. I mm. mean, first of all, I really like people. And um, I really hope that I'm, and 
an empathetic person. So when I would be in a crisis situation, I would try very hard to listen to both sides. And I was very empathetic to the other point of view, even Mm. if I didn't agree with it. I could hear it. And so Mm. that would keep me calm. And I think my goal was always to, and I wasn't always successful, but my goal was always to try and bring us to a consensus. And I I never went into any meeting thinking I was 100% right. I mean, I do have a strong belief system, and, you know, I hope to make decisions in a listening way, but also in a decisive way. But I like people, and so I, I was always, I always understood the other side. Mm. Well, and speaking of habits, like the habits that helped you stay calm, were there other habits that allowed you to just maintain this incredibly intense level of productivity and, you know, amidst a lot of chaos and change? I think it's really important that you exercise Mm. because it releases these hormones that keep you calm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's been scientifically proven that that happens. And for me, if I didn't exercise, say, two days in a row, I would get more tense. You know, mm-hmm. I also think it's important that you keep a balanced life. I have lots of friends, and of course, I'm blessed with a wonderful family. But if you do things outside of your work, it gives you a balance. Mm. If you get interested in philanthropy, if you have friends and you talk about other things, you then realize that this movie, in my case, is not life or death. It's not finding <laughs> a kid. And it, it gives you a balance. But if you, If all you do is work your whole life, if you never have friends, if you never have love, if you never have travel, if you never have other experiences, you lose sight of the whole world. Do you know? So I think that was something that I was very lucky at, that I would leave my job and I would have a whole other life. I would I would consciously have another life. I would consciously travel. I would consciously have friends. And they kept me sane and they kept my life in balance. Yeah, I know you said that you traveled for weeks at a time sometimes when you were first coming up in your career, and then it seemed like later you just had too much to do and you weren't able to take those long trips. Do you think that sort of made you feel more pressure that you didn't have that release valve anymore? Well, I certainly missed the travel. And, you know, one of the reasons that at a certain point in my life I wanted a different life and decided to leave the movie business is I wanted a more balanced life. I think travel is a wonderful way to make you realize that you are a teeny, teeny, teeny part of a very big world and that your problems, they may seem just the biggest problem in the world, really aren't. I mean, the real problems in the world are health. I mean, that is, you know, a life or death issue, but everything else you get to the other side of and you do survive and you are usually better for it. But when you're going through, you know, a movie that didn't work and you feel like a failure, you know, two years later, you'll talk about it and you'll laugh about the feelings that you felt. They're still painful, but you know that you got to the other side of it. So I wanted to leave the movie business to have a more balanced life and I wanted to give back. So that had always been a lifelong plan of mine. And now I can go on a trip and even stay an extra day just because I want to. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't have to be on the phone for four hours every day, (laughs) checking in with the studio, which I used to do, you know, and now I still do my work, but I can, you know, basically get it done in an hour on the phone when and if I want to. Well, and that was one of the most interesting points in your career was at at age 60, you did very consciously 
reinvent yourself. And I think you said that it wasn't that you retired, but you rewired yourself. And yes, and that's an ex- expression I read, which I love. Oh, it's you know? no, it's great. And so you met with President Carter, and you you sort of had this decision to uh, recreate your life. So. It, it, but you said you'd sort of been planning that all along, or was there like a big lightning bolt, or was more something that you were building toward the experience of reinvention? Well, it's something that I always dreamed about, but I didn't know if I could achieve. Mm. I always dreamed that if I was lucky enough to achieve my goals, that I wanted to give back at a certain time in my life. And I set the arbitrary age of 60, mm. because mm. I think 60, you're still young enough to have a whole new chapter, maybe a 30-year chapter, actually, but you're not so young that you can wait. So in my early 50s, I started to feel good about my career, and I started to feel that I was beginning to achieve all of my dreams. And so I set this goal, and I thought, well, if I turn 60 and I'm still in this job, I won't be able to look in the mirror. I will feel like I copped out. Mm-hmm. And so I started talking about it and, you know, I started watching my behavior also. I mean, you know, I was repeating myself mm-hmm. and, you know, my passion wasn't the same. It was less for the movies and more for other things. And also, you know, the highs weren't as high, the lows were as low. Things were becoming repetitive. So I started dreaming about setting up a foundation and giving back and I started to prepare for it. I started to put my toe into areas that interested me to see if they really would interest me. So I started to get more involved in cancer research because my, I had lost my mother to cancer. I started to, and by that I mean starting to get involved with organizations that funded scientists. I started to get more involved in education. I was fortunate enough to become a regent of the University of California. And slowly but surely I started to realize that I wanted to be at those meetings more than (laughs) I wanted to be at a script meeting. And so I decided I was going to leave the movie industry and start a whole new life, which is one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And, and I urge it to everybody. I mean, change is good. Mm -hmm. You feel younger. You feel more alive. I felt like I was graduating college. and (laughs) Suddenly I had to learn new things and that the whole world was open to me. And I think curiosity is a wonderful thing that that keeps you young and change. You know, change is, I I really support that. Yeah, it strikes me that at 60, then you sort of had to face all the same insecurities, although you had all this knowledge of doing something new that you'd face when you join the movie business. So, you know, that must have been challenging, but exciting. It was challenging and extraordinarily exciting. And I had less insecurities at 60 than I did it, you know, in my 20s and 30s. And I owned those insecurities. I wasn't afraid to say to a scientist, wait a minute, I don't understand (laughs) really what a stem cell is. And they were so nice to me. They would draw me pictures and explain it to me. And I came home with books to read. But it's invigorating because you're learning something new. And it's a whole new world that opened up to me, a whole new world of ideas and people. And I think learning was thrilling to me, and I wasn't afraid at all to say I didn't know what I was doing. And 
and that's how you are when you're in your 20s. You know, you're just like so excited. And at 60, it was kind of a rebirth. Well, and it's interesting because I think maybe from the outside, sometimes these changes, like if you're looking at someone else, it looks very abrupt, but it's, but you actually thought about it, prepared for it, had a whole strategy of how to ease from one thing into another, how to figure out what you were interested in. And so it might look like, ooh, all of a sudden this huge shift but in fact, it was a very thoughtful, gradual shift with a lot of intention about what it was that you wanted, what was meaningful to you, what you wanted more of, what you wanted less of. Fewer phone calls, um, more scientific learning is a great way to shape your life. That is, that is absolutely true. I think I thought about giving back in some way from the time I was a young person, from the time I was a child, you know, watching my mother care about other people and other issues. But early in my 50s, it was a mm. conscious decision. So I had eight years in ter- of internal transition and of external learning about other things. So I don't advise that anyone do it abruptly mm-hmm. because then you're not prepared. But whenever I talk to people, I say, try it out. There's 24 hours in a day. Take an hour out on a Saturday and go to something that you think you're interested in. Volunteer mm-hmm. your time. And see if you're still interested in it by the end of X amount of time in it. And if you are, that's your your path as to what you want to do for what I now refer to as my encore career. <laughs> and we're living so much longer now that that we do need meaningful work in in this third chapter. And Sherry, as you look back, is there anything that you wish that you'd known when you were, you know, 23 that, you know, you know now that you feel like would have made the path easier or are you just sort of glad everything turned out the way it did? Well, I live in eternal gratitude. So let me just say that. And I know how lucky I've been. And, you know, whatever success I had, I needed luck to have that success. And I feel very fortunate and grateful that I did. Um, not saying I didn't work hard, but mm. a lot of people work hard, and with luck, you don't get to where you want to be. So we always call it that the movie God has to shine on you, and I'm very grateful for it. I think if I look back, I wish I had known that what you think is a life or death issue, and you do, you know, um, really isn't. And I wish that I had worried less and maybe had more fun, mm. you know. Um, not taken everything quite so seriously, because literally, I mean, I know this might sound strange, but if a movie didn't work, mm-hmm. I took it so seriously and I felt like I had let the filmmakers down when I was the head of the studio and I felt as a producer that it was my personal failure. I, I sometimes like didn't mm-hmm. want to get out of bed and I wish I had known, oh, come on, it's a movie. Uh-huh. You're going to be Okay. And you know what? It could have an afterlife, too, and be respected. So I wish I hadn't taken everything quite so seriously, and I wish I had learned earlier that these are not life-or-death issues. And <laughs> probably had more fun. I think laughter is probably one of the greatest things in the whole world. And I'm not saying I didn't have fun, but I, I probably wish I had had more. Right. Well, in each episode, we always have a try this at home, which is sort of a concrete, manageable tip that people can try at home to make themselves happier or healthier, or more productive, more creative. And so do you have a try this at home suggestion for our listeners that you think they could use themselves starting tomorrow to make themselves happier? 
That's a great question. I think I probably have several, and they're all sort of related. <laughs> I mean, first of all, if you wake up every day and with gratitude, ah. I think gratitude is the most important thing that will keep you happy. If you just do a little checklist or every day just think of one thing that you're grateful mm. for, that I think will will give you great joy. And I think also which kind of goes along with that, they all sort of go along with gratitude, is don't compare yourself to mm. others. I think mm. that is one of the most destructive things that people do, is they can be really happy, and then they hear about somebody, <laughs> and they go, oh my God, I should want that. Uh-huh. What I'm saying is don't look to other people and say, do I have enough? Yes, if you think you have enough, you have enough. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So don't compare yourself to others. And then I think... Philanthropy really does make you happy. And by that, I mean, just find a way to get out of yourself and give back. Mm-hmm. You know, just do an act of kindness every day. You know, stop and talk to someone you wouldn't talk to. Just get out of yourself. You know, I met a 97-year-old woman the other day, and I've never forgotten what she said to me. And it, it, it was so wise. She was standing tall. She had high heels on at 97. Her (laughs) mind was perfect. And I said, what is your secret? Mm -hmm. And she said, genes, attitude, and gratitude. Mm. And she said, patience, energy, and philanthropy. And giving back, I think, really does give you joy. And I think an act of kindness or an act of giving back will, will bring you great happiness and they're all tied to gratitude it's a long answer no but you're right amazing yeah they're all tied together and it's sort of that do good feel good area where it it really does make us happier to do good things for the world and to be grateful for everything we've had well and sherry we're very grateful to you for uh joining us this is fantastic your biography is fascinating And it was such a a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Well, I love talking to the two of you, too, and it was my pleasure. So thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Okay, Elizabeth, it's Demerits and Gold Stars, and you are up for a demerit this week. Yes. So, Gretchen, what started out as a gold star turned quickly (laughs) to a demerit. Sarah and I were writing this week. Uh, We had a major deadline. Um, It was like, so when I have a big deadline, I'm at home, like, writing. I sit on my bed and I write. And the first day, I went and took a break and did four miles on the treadmill. And I was so proud of myself. I was like, Adam, this week in writing, I'm not going to let myself go and fall apart. I'm going to exercise every day. It's just too important. I'm going to keep my head together. It's going to help my writing. You know, and he's like, oh, that's great. And I said, yeah, I did it today. I feel great. Um, And I was all proud of myself, ready to give myself a gold star. And then for the next seven days, I did not exercise (laughs) once. I completely fell apart the next day. And um, I haven't gotten back yet. So do you think that maybe by starting off strong, you were kind of like, ooh, I did so well on Monday, I get to take Tuesday off, or kind of what was in your head? 
I don't know. I think it's just, you know, the pressure of writing really builds like every day because the deadline is just closer and closer. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of mentally fell apart. And I was like, I can't exercise. I don't have time. Uh, I, I have to be here, I, you know, chained to my computer. And I just kind of immediately fell apart, even though intellectually, I know it's better to do the exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sort of panic button wouldn't let me continue. Well, I wonder if four miles was perhaps too ambitious, because maybe, I mean, how long does that take you to do? Like an hour and 10 minutes. I mean, it's great to do four miles, but maybe that just felt like such a big chunk of the day that then it was mm-hmm. it was just too easy for it to be crowded out. Because I think it, it would have been better to have done even two miles or even one mile. You know, do you think right. you could have done it more easily if it had been uh, a shorter period of time? That's very possible. And maybe what I should do is do one mile at a time. Uh-huh. Because then I, it's like, say, even if it's not a fast mile, so I'm not getting all sweaty, because that's the other issue is having to take a shower afterwards. Yeah. You know, that adds on another half hour, 45 minutes. So maybe if I just like walked a mile for a break and then, you know, watched a little TV yeah. or a podcast. And then, you know, two hours later, did another mile. Yeah. Two hours after that, another mile. That's probably what I should do. The good thing about setting up like that is it almost might feel like a treat. Like when you're feeling restless and tired of working, you're like, well, I get credit. You know, like I'm being good when I'm taking this break. And you get to watch TV or you get to listen to uh, S-Town or whatever it is, a podcast. And so it feels like a break instead of feeling like, oh, here's another onerous duty that I'm trying to squeeze into a day that's already full of pressure and commitments and duty. Yeah, I think that'll be that'll that'll be my approach um, the next time I have one of these deadlines, and I'll let you know if that works. Help me remember that. I will next time I'm on a deadline. <laughs> Um, All right, Gretch, what is your gold star this week? Well, you gave yourself a demerit, but I'm giving you a gold star because for years you have been fussing with your blepharitis, which is that minor but annoying eye problem that you've had. And from what I understand, you have figured it out. You have conquered your blepharitis. Yes, I took my eye doctor's advice and I got a little thing of um, baby shampoo and I put it in the shower and now every time I take a shower, I scrub my eyes with baby shampoo. And that seems to be doing the trick. I haven't had uh, my usual scratching, um, painful eye problems. So I seem to have gotten the best of the blepharitis. So just to put, you know, because in Better Than Before, I talk about the 21 strategies people can use to make or break their habits. And this was a habit that had evaded you for a long time. And now you've conquered it. Would you say that it's the strategy of convenience that worked, that you found a way just to, like, make it easy enough and part of an established habit enough that it became something that you really kept up with instead of constantly kind of pushing off? Is Is it just making it convenient? Yeah, I think it's just really convenient. And it's also my eye falls on the baby shampoo, which is right next to my other shampoo. So I remember it, you know, and then I go, oh, let me do that right now. And it doesn't feel like it takes extra time. So, yeah, I think it's just super easy. Excellent. Excellent. Well, gold star for you. Thank you. Thanks, Gretch. (laughs) And that's it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Say you're sorry. Let us know if you tried it and if it worked for you. Special thanks to our terrific guest, Sherry Lansing. To learn more about her fascinating life and career, check out Stephen Galloway's new biography, Leading Lady. 
Thank you to our producer, Kristen Meinzer. Thank you also to Andy Bowers of Panoply and Gretchen. We have to wish best of luck yes. to Laura Mayer, our beloved Laura, who's leaving for another job. We'll miss her, yep. but of course we wish her the best. I'm on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and Elizabeth is at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. As always, if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes. And as I promised, I am now listing two resources every episode. And if you want my newsletter, which has updates from the blog, the podcast, all that stuff, text 66866 and in the message box, enter happier. And when you get a text back, enter your email address and I will sign you up. Also, if you love manifestos, we've talked about manifestos before. If you love manifestos, email me at podcast at GretchenRubin.com and I will send you some manifestos. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward. Onward and upward.